And he said, this is Cinematography 101. It should be called Problem Solving and Troubleshooting 101. If you're not good at that, you should probably drop the class. And about three people got up and left. That was Thomas Bango talking about an honest introduction to the camera department. And this is So You Work in Entertainment. My name's Adam Klaus, and I've been a full-time voice actor for the last eight years. I didn't really realize that you could do that until I was already doing it myself, which made me realize that there are thousands of jobs in the entertainment industry that most people just don't know about. This is the podcast where I talk to the people who do those jobs. And before I take you to today's conversation, you should know that there will be gems from this interview that didn't make it into the episode, as well as other content that will live exclusively on Instagram. And my computer. And probably the cloud. I don't really know how any of that works. You know what? Why don't you just follow so.youworkinentertainment on Instagram and we can all move past it. I know that was more ado than I normally do. So now without further ado, Thomas Bango. Thank you for coming in, Thomas. Oh, my pleasure. So you work in entertainment? I do. I work in the camera department. I started out as a camera assistant and now I'm a camera operator. And I've worked on all kinds of stuff. You really have a very wide-ranging type of shows that you've worked on. I mean, everything from documentary to TV series to films, made-for-TV films. Yeah, 3D. 3D. Yeah, I had a question about that. Maybe we'll get to that later. Where are you from originally? I'm born in Burbank. Born in Burbank. Burbank. uh, Born in Burbank and grew up in Southern Oregon. Okay. Are your parents in the industry or? No. No, mom was a nurse and my father worked for Xerox. Okay. Yeah. So did you always have a camera in your hands as a kid? No, that didn't start till we went to Oregon. Because in junior high, Lloyd Smith was my photo teacher. Okay. And they had a dark room and you developed your own film. And maybe once or twice a semester, we'd get on a bus and go down to the city park. And he'd give us an assignment. You got to do nature. You got to do this. Slice of life and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's super cool. Yeah. In high school, I was on the yearbook staff and we had a dark room and it's such a luxury now to think of being able to just walk in there and spool your own film in the dark. Right, right. So from junior high and shooting pictures, that kind of sparks the love for the camera and that continues on through high school or what does that look like? Yeah, it was kind of my best friend. Well, that was all still photography and what kind of sparked my interest in making movies. I mean, we had a movie camera at home, but that was hands off. You weren't allowed to touch that. But my best friend one day, we always sat together at lunch and he started walking past like our table where we usually sit at. And I go, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to Lloyd Smith's class. He's showing the student film awards from Kodak. I'm like, oh, okay. So we went in there and had our lunch and I saw all the student film awards and stuff. And it just really kind of sparked an interest. And so then every speech, every paper I had to write was all on researching film production and all that kind of stuff. And then around the same time, John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn came to my hometown to shoot a movie called Rooster Cogburn. Okay. Which was shot all over, mostly central Oregon, up near Bend. Okay. That was in the paper every day. So, like, I couldn't wait to get home to read the paper, see what happened and stuff. So. That's cool. Yeah. So that, and then just another movie came through. It was like a movie of the week with Robert Ulrich. And so my mom would get home from work at six o'clock. We only had one car. And they were shooting nights, which I got my sister to find out because she worked at the Denny's across from the hotel where the crew was staying. So she, you know, served them breakfast every morning, yeah. dinner at night. Oh, well, what are you guys doing tomorrow? Where are you at? So I, my mom would come home at six. I would take the car, go out to set, not on anybody's invitation, just park, kind of, you know, kind of wander in, just hang out all night. And then I had to be back by six o'clock in the morning so that she could go back to work. Wow. Yeah. So it was just, it was just a blast to watch. What kind of stuff did you pick up on that? And how close did you get? What kind of... Oh, almost as close as you and I are. You know, nobody nobody on a movie say, as long as you're not, you know, causing any trouble. But the coolest thing was these old arc light lights, where it's literally like two welding rods that come together and create an arc. 
And so it has a little chimney on the top. And there's a guy, it's called trimming an arc. There's a guy on the back of each light. As those burn, you have to bring them closer together so that they'll keep same intensity of light and stuff. I've never heard of this before. That's how it all used to be was... Yeah. Well, it started with the old spotlights during World War II were all those arc lights. Okay. So a lot of the stuff in the film industry comes out of the military. Dollies, you know, the dollies they put the cameras on? Yep. Those were used to put the missiles underneath the wing. So you'd put the missile where the camera goes, and then it would hydraulically lift it up into place, and then they'd secure it. And Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so a lot of stuff. Have you ever heard the term for clothespins is C-47s? Yep. Yeah. I've never heard, heard a really solid story on that, but it was like the ordering code for clothespins in the military or something like that. Gotcha. It was a C-47, yeah. Yeah, that's what my friend Ben, who went to film school, he was always, I told him that I got clothespins. He's like, oh, C-47s. Yeah, they yeah, call those C-47s. Yeah. We and didn't know we were If you spin them around, then they call them bullets because they look like a bullet. You know, where the things are like this, you flip them around and then they're more like this. Sure. And you guys can't see that because it's a podcast, <laughs> but my apologies. An amazing visual wasted. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, put up the visuals on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. We'll do a whole thing. Make it interactive. Yeah. So, so yeah, that how- just kind of led into that. And then I graduated in June. And then a week later, I moved back down to California because okay. I wanted to go to school. And the town I grew up in was a mill town, you know, six mills running 24 hours a day. It was kind of like the film industry. If you weren't in a mill family wasn't going to happen, you know, and those were good paying jobs. And my best friend did that for his career and stuff because his dad was a millwright and stuff. So he got in. I was always the smallest kid in school. Okay. So it's like, I don't see me picking up a sheet of plywood and swinging it over my head. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, well, I better find something else to do. So you go to college in Burbank then or I went to, in LA? I went to college at Valley College. Valley here college. In Van Nuys. Yeah. Okay. And I have to say, I'm going to do a plug for community colleges. The one I've been doing online up in Sacramento, Los Rios or Consumenes, and then Valley College here. They're the best teachers I've ever had. Really? Yeah. Because they're usually, when I was at Valley, all retired professionals from broadcasting world, from television, film, radio, my radio class, the guy used to work at WABC in New York, you know, and they were really good about like, oh, you think you're ready on that turntable? Okay, let's throw you in the radio station. And so it was great. The first day of my cinematography 101 class with Milt Timmons, he comes to the front of the class. He had written his own book for the class. Still have it. And he said, this is cinematography 101. It should be called problem solving and troubleshooting 101. If you're not good at that, you should probably drop the class. Wow. And about three people got up and left. Wow. But that opening sentence to cinematography 101 was the most honest prelude to this business. That's all you are going to do in this business. And I kind of hate to see big budget movies because they just throw money at stuff. And when you throw money at stuff, it gets rid of the creativity. Sure. The creative problem solving. And that's kind of what I like. It's like, well, how are we going to get around this? Do you find that the, the set of problems are different in the different end products, like a TV show versus a film versus a... You've done some live events too. Live events, you just have to be on your feet. You just really have to pay attention. It's my, it's my favorite kind of job to do. Okay. You know, because it's follow the bouncing ball. Sure. You can't fall asleep on that. You know? Yeah, for sure. You don't have that luxury of, oops, I was out of focus. We well, you don't have this. the luxury of a take two. Yeah, exactly. You know, I did the halftime show for the 2003 Super Bowl. Okay. Down in San Diego. And we rehearsed that halftime show for two and a half weeks. Really? Yeah. Literally from just loading stuff onto the field. Every person had a placard that hung around their neck and it told them if you're stage piece 43, you go down to the 35 yard line and you hang a left. You know, it was almost like football plays. Sure. And there was this military guy that ran that whole thing. And 
we had to bring 43 van size pieces of equipment onto the field in four and a half minutes. That was audio, video. There was film cameras involved that had to come down and we had preset mounts for them, but mm-hmm. they had to bring all that stuff in in four and a half minutes. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy, but it was just like, I love it. How do you get hooked up with something like that? I had a friend that I went to her house for a New Year's brunch or something like that. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm going down to San Diego to work on the halftime show. So I wrote her this letter. And I think Shania Twain was going to be one of the singers. It was Sting, Shania Twain, and somebody else. And so I wrote her and I was like, hey, this job you're doing contains two of my favorite things, football and Shania Twain. (laughs) Okay, maybe not Shania Twain, but (laughs) it does involve football. And so I just gave her this pseudo resume of like, listen, I've already scouted all the closest Starbucks locations to the stadium. I'm really good with that. I speak latte very well, you know, <laughs> so I just ended up, and then I, I wasn't a camera guy on it. I was a producer's assistant, this guy, Gary Landy out of back east from, I think, New York. Amazing guy, really crazy, smart guy. So yeah. you just wanted to be a part of the show. I just wanted to be, yeah, kind of like bucket list kind of stuff. Just okay. wanted to click that off, yeah. But it was just so much fun. I just like, yeah, what do you need me to do? I'll go do that. Nice. Yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. What are some other bucket list things? Um, I've done quite a bit of them. You know, oddly enough, I never wanted to be an operator. Really? Well, I, I shouldn't say I don't, I didn't want to be an operator, but there's a thing called the availability list through the union. Okay. And the first AC I was working for, we were trying to hire people and couldn't find any, you know, all our friends were already working. So he's like, have the union send over the availability list. I said, okay. So they faxed it to production, production brought it to me before cell phones and stuff. So there was six pages, first page and a half were assistants. The rest of it, the next four and a half pages was all operators. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, well, that's probably not a great place to land. But then I got the opportunity and I love, I, you know, absolutely love it. So can you kind of quickly go over that as far as the hierarchy of a camera team? In the camera department, it starts with the director of photography or DP for short. Okay. And then it goes to your camera operators. Mm-hmm. Then it goes to your first AC and your first AC is running the department, hiring, equipment, all that kind of stuff. That's first assistant camera. First assistant camera, yeah. And then that's his day job. And then his onset job is pulling focus, changing lenses, reloading the film in the camera when that was a thing, um, reloading the cards on the cameras, sure. tape for the short amount of time that happened. So is there a second assistant camera? Then there's a second assistant camera. And then in the film world, they still have film loaders. Sure. Or now you'll have a digital utility. Digital utility will assist the DIT. The DIT is digital imaging technician, and he's basically the engineer on set. He's putting coloring LUTs on the raw image so the DP can kind of see what it's going to be like when it's a finished product. Sure. And then... um, Just real quickly on that, because to get the most out of a camera, you capture it kind of without the color baked on. and then Right, it's called log. Yeah. You'll hear terms like log and raw. Raw is not a picture. I kind of think of raw as like film. Okay. You can't pull the film out of the magazine after you've shot it and be like, oh, that looks pretty good. Well, I think we'll move on. <laughs> sure. It has to be developed. So that's the same thing with a raw image. A raw image has to be what they call debared. And so that's a process. And then you get an image. And then with log, log is not a heavily processed image, but it always kind of looks like you're looking through a dirty window. It's kind of muted mm-hmm. that way. What you can do is you can put up these things called LUTs. It stands for lookup table. And you can create a look in a LUT if you want it to be like noir, you know, 40s or something like that. Maybe like a a nighttime thing. I did a thing when Sony came out with one of their new cameras. 
we went shot stuff and then we went back into the class and the guy's like, okay, what do you want it to look like? I go, I want it to look like early morning. And he took the same footage and made it look like, he made it a little warm, you know? Mm -hmm. I said, okay, now I want it to look day for night. And then he took the warm out and he made it a little blue and brought the contra contrast down. And it was amazing. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's like Photoshop, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, you, it, you just take a good image. You can do pretty much everything. But they like to kind of see what it's going to look like, you know, so they can kind of tweak it. Because sometimes your contrast ratios or your lighting ratios and stuff, you know, they're looking at that stuff. But now it's what you see is what you get kind of thing. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's almost even better because you, what you see is what you get. Well, you can futz that in post if you're shooting log and, and stuff. So Yeah. I, I'm always amazed that with how complex you can make things now, that right. it, it used to be literally a film strip that was cut and, oh, yeah. and glued together. Glued together. Like, yeah. It's amazing how far we've come. And there's just, you could never know it all within all yeah. this stuff. The only downside to that is I miss like having rehearsals. It was always nice to have a rehearsal because that's where you solve your problems. Sure. That's when you'd lay marks for the actors and blah, blah, blah. And, there was a discipline to it in a weird way. And it also kind of set a rhythm for the set. Okay, pictures up. Pictures up means hair and makeup's going to come in, blah, blah, blah. So you're thinking in your head, okay, well, we have time to, you know, change out this piece of equipment real quick or something like that. There was just this rhythm to the set. And it takes a while for a crew on a new project, you know, to reach that. The first week is always nuts because everybody's just kind of feeling everybody out, figuring out where your space is, where your carts go, you know. Getting acclimated to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just meeting new people and all that kind of... That's the best thing. It's just like, you're always meeting new people. If it's a horrible job, it only lasts a few weeks and then you're on to the next thing and, you know, you can tough it out and, you know. But most of them are great. It's just like, everybody's moving in the same direction. We're all just salmon swimming up the river, you know, yeah. for the same purpose. It has to feel good to be part of the team when everybody's aligned on that. Oh my and God, yeah. When I was on Mad TV, I still have friends from Mad TV. We all still keep in touch and have traveled together and... Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you think, oh my God, I'm never going to have this again. Sure. You know, but when you do, it's great. Yeah. You know, so that's happened a few times, so. Yeah, it's like you kind of go through a war together, right? Yeah. To put all these moving pieces, especially with something like Mad TV, which I want to get to in, yeah, yeah. in a little bit here. Yeah, so yeah. in college at LAVCC, where do you go from there? This kind of really fosters your, your that, love of the camera, right? Yeah. So I was taking both broadcasting and film classes at the same time. And in that, I met one of my best friends, Pisha, who is now a DP in Thailand. He was originally from Thailand, moved here. LAVC was considered a commuter college okay. at the time. You'd work during the day and go to school at night. At mm -hmm. the time, I was working for Coca-Cola. So my hours there were 3 o'clock in the morning till noon, traveling all over Ventura, Los Angeles, and Orange County. What were you doing for Coca-Cola? We would go out to the stores at 3 o'clock in the morning while they were closed, and then we'd pull all the beverage off the table. We'd clean all that syrup and all that crap off there, and then we'd put everything back and face all the cans like it was a brand new store. That was a great job. And then my buddy Pisha, he had pursued getting in the camera department. He'd been working on TV movies of the week and stuff like that. And he got a feature and he was looking for a film loader. And so he asked our buddy Jay and he's like, uh, do you want to do it? He's like, no. He goes, why don't you ask Tom? And he goes, oh, he'll never quit Coca-Cola. I mean, I had a company car, regular check every week, you know. So he goes, well, just ask him. So he asked me and he's like, would you want to be a loader? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> definitely. He goes, seriously? And I was like, yeah, I would. I was nervous telling my family that I was going to quit a steady job and sure. go into this crazy business. And they couldn't have been happier. They were like, okay, great. This is what you've wanted for a long time and we'll support you and stuff like that. So that was good. That's excellent. So that was October of 1990. Okay. We shot up at the South Rim of Yosemite okay. in a meadow there. It's a movie called Giant of Thunder Mountain. We averaged 54 setups a day for six weeks. 
Wow. And then the next movie I went on, we did like 12 setups a day. And I was just like, this is the most boring job I've ever been on. Yeah, know? when you start in the fire, of course, anything yeah, else exactly. isn't going to be as hot. But I had that job, and then it was the worst time for the business because it was a recession and stuff. And then I didn't have another paying job until August of 91. Oh, wow. But because I'd worked at Coca-Cola, I had great unemployment. So that kind of got me through and doing a lot of freebies and that kind of thing. So, Did you think you made a mistake at any point? Oh, yeah. You think yeah. that quite a bit. Yeah. 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 So it's just like, what did I do? Well, how did the second job come about then? Pisha. Okay. You know, but we like palled around and just did a bunch of free stuff and just making connections. Like this is how bad it was. The director of the movie we were working on was pushing Dolly on a four camera show just for work. Wow. So that's like director of photography, passing up key grip, passing, you know, he was taking, you know, a pretty big step backwards yeah. too. Times are tough. You know. And then I got on a t another TV series for NBC, did that. And then after that was done, I was just like, okay, if it's going to be this slow, I'm just going to go back to school and finish my degree. Because that was a big goal. I wanted to have a college degree. And so then I'd been applying to schools. I didn't want to get a film degree. Okay. I'd been a second AC for a couple of years. I just wanted to do something different because I'd taken a lot of film stuff. And so my goal was to get out in two years. I sent out all these letters. I got accepted at Montana State, like in a month. It's like unreal how it kind of all fell together. I imagine there's a lot worse places that you could oh, go yeah. than Montana. Well, the winters were. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. So how do you work your way back to LA then? While I was up there, I couldn't take a lot of classes because I wasn't a resident and it was too expensive and I was my grandmother loaned me the money to go back to school. Gotcha. And so second year, I took 22 units the first semester and 24 units the second semester. I was directing television news and I was producing sports for the university. Oh, wow. So I did all that, which I took full advantage of because I'd always had to work and go to school. Mm. And this was the first time I could ever just go to school. Really immerse yourself in it. And do internships. Like the little local ABC station, which was in an old beauty parlor, they had an internship open. So I called them and I was like, hey, is that still open? They're like, yeah. And I said, well, can I come down and do an interview? And he's like, yeah, come down whenever, you know? And I was like, what time's good tonight? And he's like, well, you don't have to come tonight. And I'm like, no, I want to come tonight. Because like in Los Angeles, that would be snapped up. You sure. Know? For the next three months, nobody else showed up. <laughs> so I just had full range of just, you know whatever you wanted. Yeah, yeah. And so I just learned that business. One night after the news, the news director comes down and he's like, um, this is 1993, 94. And he comes down and he goes, can you get us on the air? Outside of the news, we never did anything live. And I go, well, probably let me go talk to Master Control. What's going on? And he goes, oh, the police are chasing OJ Simpson down the freeway. I want to go live. I was like, okay, well, hang on a sec. You know, I had to build graphics to say where we were getting our feed from. And so people would know it was a live thing and stuff. Sure. So my buddy, who he would direct the 5.30 news, he would go to the gym. Then I would start prepping for the 10 o'clock news, which I directed. And then he was the assistant director for me. So we just kind of switched places. So he's on the treadmill at the gym. And he hears our news anchor. Hi, we're coming to you live from Los Angeles. And OJ Simpson's being chased down the freeway. And he looks up and he's, he comes screaming into the, the studio. station yeah. he's like what is going on and i'm like just sit down and start hitting buttons man because there you switch cameras with one hand and you switched audio with the other and i'm like trying to run tape machines and the video toaster and everything i was like just sit down it's like wow crazy but it was like that kind of stuff that just like okay but then you know that all ran its course 
learned a ton doing sports and news and all that kind of stuff. When commercials would come through town, I'd jump on those and work on those, that kind of thing. And then my two buddies that I met, Scott and Reggie, Reggie was doing after school specials at the time for ABC, him and his writing partner. They were producing and directing. So they had one that was coming up and they're like, are you coming back? Because we want you to work on our next after school special. So that's what brought me back to Los Angeles. Gotcha. And then, if I could work anywhere, if I could live anywhere and work in this business, it would be Montana. It was like, I really liked it up there. Yeah. Um, it's too expensive now. <laughs> it's like Los Angeles expensive. Yeah. When I was in Alaska, there was a guy there. He's a pilot and he did a lot of the flight footage for, this is before drones, I guess, uh -huh. really had precedence. He was the only studio with ISDN that you could patch into. Right. And I had a job when I was up there. And so I, I met this guy and he told me, he was like, oh yeah, I kind of created this company and Spielberg comes to me whenever he needs anything shot. Wow. So this dude just has a studio in Alaska, living the dream, nice. flying around. And I was like, this guy figured it out. That's yeah. that's the way to do it. He's out of the hustle and bustle of everything. Right. He did some voiceover, so he had a studio for all that. Right. I was like, how do I get that? I want what he has. Yeah, I have, I, actually I went up to Alaska to do a 3D movie. It plays like in science museums and stuff now. Okay. It, it was all about, it's called Walking with Dinosaurs. Okay. But it was interesting because we would go to a beach and these guys would set up this system called LIDAR. And it's kind of like a 3D imaging setup, but they set up this array of antennas and then they record the entire beach. Okay. So that way when they send all this stuff to Australia to animate the dinosaurs, when the dinosaurs walk, they actually push the sand. Wow. You know, they can animate that so that it, it looks like they're interacting and not like tippy-toeing on the top of the sand. Sure. So we would show, while we were showing up to set up all our 3D stuff, the guys were there. They'd been up since way before us just setting stuff up and LIDARing the beach or whatever location we were at. And one location we had was right up against these cliffs outside of Homer. And we had a safety officer. And he's like, you guys got to stop shooting, load up and get out of here now because tide's coming in and oh, there's nowhere to go. Oh, sure. And there were more than a couple of days where the waves were slapping up against the tires and we'd sink and some Humvee would come pull us out. And I was like... Okay, well, you know, this equipment can stay here, but I will be running towards the... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the dryness. <laughs> Head for high ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. So when you start doing the, the after-school special that brings you back, yeah. does work kind of start to pick up after that? Or do you experience a similar thing where you do this job? And then... Well, it's always like that anytime you move. But that was a good, like, jumping off point. And then another good friend of mine, Jeff Hall, who was a gaffer, him and Reggie had bought a three-ton grip and lighting truck. And so when I came back, I started working with him on that. We were doing like industrials for like Vaughn's markets and stuff like that. Okay. So I did a bunch of that stuff, which was great because then I learned, he taught me so much about lights and, you know, different quality of light and how to create it with, I mean, the largest light we had on the truck was I think a 2K, you know, Fresnel. That's a pretty small light in terms of movie making and stuff. But one of the cameramen was this guy, Fred Martin, who was amazing. He could shoot really nice stuff really quickly. And that's an art form. It is a business and time is money and all that kind of stuff. After I did the after school special, in fact, I went to Savannah, Georgia to do a film with Fred and Jeff. Jeff's like, hey, do you want to go to Savannah with me? And I'm like, yeah, just on vacation. He's like, no, we're going to do a movie down there. And I was like, oh, okay. I said, do they need a camera guy? And he's like, no, you're going to be my best boy electric. And I go, what do I know about that? And he goes, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll teach you. And I was like, yeah, but if I screw something up, I can kill somebody with electricity. <laughs> you know, if I buzz a shot as a first AC, uh, that's yeah. that's not going to kill anybody. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. my career. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You might not get called back after that. Yeah, yeah. So it's all these like 
project like that where all the good stories are. You know, it's just like craziness of working with locals in Savannah and stuff. But that's an amazing town if you've never been there. And I haven't been. It seems yeah. like that's part of your ethos is you say yes and then you figure it out after. Yeah, I just like to work. I don't have to be on Spider-Man 16. To me, you kind of get lost in that. I like smaller independent films. Okay. Because you get to know the people, the crew, the actors. It's more of like a team effort and stuff. Sure. Just for me, bigger movies like that just seem like jobs. Sure. You know. They kind of, everybody has their own specific lane that they're yeah, staying yeah. in, right? Yeah. And I like storytelling. I like to be at that level where I'm contributing and stuff just through whatever job I do. You know? Sure. Which you do on anything, but... Can you talk about the different contributions that you bring for something that is comedy versus something that's a complete departure from that? Like maybe one of the live events or the Justin Bieber documentary that you worked on, something like that. What specifically makes a good comedy cameraman? What would you think makes a good comedy cameraman? What asset do you think is the most important of your five senses? Uh, for a cameraman? Yeah. I would say watching, seeing, listening. Your ears, yeah. My ears are my second pair of eyes. Okay. Because I can hear somebody coming up. Like if it's... If it's a completely unscripted kind of project, mm -hmm. you know, you have to listen for that person coming up. You have to listen for lines. You have to listen in your headset for whatever the director's asking for. So are you wearing one of your headset, one of your nothing or? Yeah, exactly. So when you're handheld, you always have to wear your earpiece in your left ear. Otherwise it gets pushed up against the camera. Okay. So even when you wear a headset like these, you always wear it on the left side and then the boom comes down so it doesn't hit the camera and it's not constantly falling off. Okay. And stuff, so. Does everybody operate a camera on the mm -hmm. right shoulder? Yeah. Even if you're left-handed? The only, well, no. I've heard there's a piece of equipment called geared wheels. You might have seen them where they spin the wheels and the camera tilts up and pans left and stuff. I think another thing that came out of the military, that was just for more like aiming rockets and stuff. The only person I've heard of that operates that on the other side. So on that head, perpendicular to the way your camera runs is a wheel and that pans you left and right. And then there's a wheel at the back that you screw in or you screw out, and that makes your camera tilt up or tilt down. James Cameron had a head built because he's left-handed so that his left hand is tilting and his right hand is panning. Gotcha. And he is probably the best operator I've ever worked with. Really? Yeah. What makes him a great operator? It's a tough job. Tap dance, pat your head, rub your stomach, you know, juggle three balls. It's crazy. We were doing a 3D movie in Las Vegas for Cirque du Soleil. I think it's the Caw Show, but there's two wheels that spin like a propeller. And there's these guys that run on the outside of that. Mm -hmm. And they run on the inside and they run on the outside. No wires, no safety, anything. We're up in a lift above them and he's following them up and around. And it's just like... Oh my God, unbelievable. And the only reason I ended up there with him is because I'd hurt my leg running up and down the stairs at the love show for the Beatles love show. Oh, sure. So I was constantly on my toes and I lit up my tibia. The best thing I can say is if you're ever going to hurt yourself, do it on a Cirque du Soleil show because they have the best people in-house to take care of you. Sure. But literally I was taping an ice bag to my lower leg every day. First thing I do is I get up in the morning, walk to the ice machine, get a bucket of ice, fill up a bag ace bandage it to my leg, go to work. They had me on the truck just because I couldn't walk or go anywhere. So they're like, well, stick Bango up there. And so I was like, oh, Jesus, I don't want to be stuck in a bucket with James Cameron for the next four hours. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to talk about? But he's a super nice guy. What did you talk about? Well, he's wearing a hockey shirt. So I was like, oh, you have a big hockey fan? Who's your favorite team? And he was going down into the Marianas Trench. He's 6'3", and he was going down in a sphere that was four feet in diameter. Oh, that gives me anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. With a 3D rig. 
They wow. took a 300 pound block of aluminum because of the pressure. Mm. They had to make it out of one piece. Sure. So the guys got out their CAD design stuff and they had to make sure because once you start carving on this 300 pound block of aluminum, you better have your yeah. bells and whistles. It never so gets bigger. To, what's that? It never gets bigger. It only gets smaller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's also expensive. That's a lot of Coke cans in that thing. Yeah. But we had to build a 3D rig and have it all decked out and have it all wire tight, as tight as we could get it and stuff so that these guys could come over and 3D image it, put it in the computer and then tell the CNC machine how to cut out the 300 pound piece of aluminum. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, it's just like that kind of stuff. Like where else are you gonna get to like do that kind of stuff? And is this a thing where people are finding you because you have this track record of working on these kind of unique one-off rigs or do you just kind of happen upon these situations? How does that? I got called for a 3D commercial. I don't even remember. Just real quick yeah. with the 3D stuff. Yeah. Is that a separate camera system that you're yeah. operating? I assume that you were already working as a camera operator and then this opportunity for no, 3D No, no, I was on? working as a camera assistant at the time. Okay. So I got called to do this 3D commercial. And so when I showed up, I was just like, so what are we prepping? What, do I, what am I doing? Blah, blah, blah. And so this one guy, Frank, his nickname was Paco. He's like, oh, we'll do this and do this and do this. So I was doing it. Then we went to shoot the commercial. They called lunch. I went in to go to the bathroom before lunch. He comes in next to me and he goes, what are you doing next week? And I was like, what? <laughs> Not the question you ask somebody in the bathroom. <laughs> but I was like, I don't have anything on my schedule right now. And he goes, good, you're going to Vegas with me. We're doing a 3D commercial for uh, Cirque du Soleil. I was like, oh, do you need a camera assistant? He goes, no, I'm going to train you as a 3D tech. Wow. I was like, yeah, I don't know. That's such a great idea. He goes, listen, every other first AC that's come in here to prep equipment, we're doing most of the work. And they go over to the other side of the shop and they sit on their laptop and they get their $600 for the day and they really don't do much. Mm. And he goes, you're the first one that's come in here and done that. He goes, so I, I want to train you. And so for the next two years, it was just an unbelievable ride of 3D. It was like crazy. Are you still doing that? No, no, no. 3D's. It's kind of, that's like 3D TV, right? With the glasses and stuff? Yeah. That was like the Justin Bieber thing. One of the toughest things I ever had to do was I had to go to Anaheim to shoot 2D of a Justin Bieber concert for something they needed and trying to put together just a standard film camera out of a 3D house was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do because they don't have, the plates are all different. All the mounting's different. Everything's different. I, I thought, oh, this will be no problem compared to a 3D rig because 3D rig, you got to align it and all that kind of stuff. But it was crazy. Yeah, if you missed a week, like I'd finish a show and I'd just take a week off, I'd come back. They did everything in-house. They had a full machine shop. They make whatever you needed. They designed their own software. Wow. They did everything there. And the biggest brains there were kids that weren't old enough to drink that were just crazy smart sure so it was a good mix because they'd never been on set mm. and i didn't know their world so then when i was in their world i would ask them all these questions and they were really cool and then when they were on set i'd be like oh don't do that do it this way you know this how you do this and stuff so it was a good mix that way you know but sure. it was just like same thing, like 3D was always, the first week was the toughest because you're just leaving the shop kind of half put together. And then a week later, you're building stuff that you need and you, you, you get up on plane and you, you keep shooting, you know. Problem solving all the way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That was the, but if you missed a week, software changed, this changed, this, and you have to relearn it, you know. Wow. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy that like when we were shooting film on Mad TV, we ordered reversal film. We wanted this different look. Well, the film showed up and it's on a spool, which means there's a metal cage on either, either side. Mm -hmm. 
well, we can't put that in our camera. So while I'm in the dark room spinning those onto cores so that we can put them in our camera, I'm like, how did we not know this? So then I went to this friend, Chris Russo at Kodak, and I was like, I need all the information on all your film stocks. And then I went to, I can't remember the guy's name at Fuji, but I was like, I need all the information. And they were great. And so I made, in Excel, I made a spreadsheet of every film stock they had, what it comes with, what filters you need with it, what size, spool, core, all this kind of stuff. And that was kind of my calling card. I would send it out to DPs and I'd be like, hey, you know, I'm a first AC and I'm looking for work, but this is a sheet I put together and, you know, hope you find it useful, blah, blah, blah. I sent a lot of those out. I didn't see a good return on that, but everybody wrote back and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Really? You didn't get a lot of work off that? Uh Oh, no. That's bizarre. Yeah. It seems like an injustice in the world. Yeah. But it was one of those, and I called the union and I was like, hey, I put together this sheet and I sent it to the president and I was like, hey... I'd like you to put this in your magazine as a tear out so people could have it. Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) But I just, you know, bottom line is I just, you know, I do that kind of stuff just so I have the knowledge and I know what's going on. And then I feel like, hey, if it helps somebody else out, great. You know, if somebody else can use this. And a lot of people, like a lot of the ACs liked it more than the DPs because they were um, using that stuff all the time. And so it was just like a quick reference for them to have. So can you can you tell me how you get to Mad TV or how you start to you like comedy right you, you said yeah. you prefer to work in comedy yeah how do you go from kind of what's available because initially when you start out it's kind of what work you can get right you're not narrowing your focus at that point right yeah I've done enough freebies to last me a lifetime you know but anytime I've stepped back in like the size of a project it's never failed me I've always got a good contact out of it or more work out of it that worked better than the Kodak Fuji film sheet. But to get to Mad TV, Reggie, who owned the grip truck with Jeff, we'll connect all these dots. He was a writer producer on the after school specials, but he was also first AC as his day to day grind. He knew this DP, David Macon, who now lives in Toronto, and they got the pilot for Mad TV. Well, when I went to school, you have to have 100 days in three years to get into the union. Okay. And I was really close to having my 100 days, just working all these low budget shows and stuff. When I went to college, there was a two year gap there. I lost like a third of my days. It, it was defeating because I was like, oh, I don't know that I want to chase this union thing. It's just sure. really. And then I got Mad TV through Reggie because I was his second AC. It was on Fox. It got picked up. Pilot was non-union, but when it got picked up, it went union. So then I only had to do another two weeks on the show and do 30 days. You could get in on 30 days. Okay. If, if you're on a show that rolls over at the time. That's how I got in, back into the union was doing that. Gotcha. And then you were at Mad TV for how long? I did Mad TV for two years. We only did the film stuff. Oh, not like the live. Of, uh, no, we didn't do the live the broadcast studio stuff. stuff. We did, they did these film parodies. The first one we did, it was a takeoff on Pulp Fiction. It was called Gump Fiction. Okay. We just did these film parodies like okay. that. So like every five weeks we would go in and do that. And so that lasted for two years and there was like a little regime change at uh, Mad TV and so... So if you're only doing that every five weeks, you're doing uh, obviously other jobs in between. I'm doing commercials or yeah, other stuff. I probably did a lot of grip truck stuff in that time. Actually quickly, before, when you said best boy, can you explain best boy? That's a title that definitely anybody outside the industry is like, what is a best boy? Best boy is the rough equivalent of the, like the first AC is the best boy of the camera department. Okay. So they're hiring, they're ordering equipment. They're kind of the liaison between all the vendors and the gaffer who is what they call the chief lighting Oh, I can't even think of the last. Like rigor? No, 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 no. Rigor is pre-production. That's like, well, rigor is 
one step ahead of production. If we're gonna shoot at Staples Center tomorrow, then there's a rigging gaffer that's down there rigging that today so that when we show up, it's kind of plug in, you know, you plug gotcha. it in and then the gaffer comes in and does all the adjusting of the lights as far as levels and how it works for the thing. They kind of rough in all the lighting and then the gaffer comes in with his plan and does that. Gotcha. Yeah, but Best Boy, Best Boy Grip and Best Boy Electric, I don't know why it's not Best Boy Camera. <laughs> I don't know. I think we got Jip there. It'd be too easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But Best Boy Grip and Best Boy Electric, they're running the show for those departments. Gotcha. Well, Ordering we, equipment, hiring people. I might put that in the intro so we can put that one to rest. Because every yeah. time I talk to people about the podcast, they're like, what is a Best Boy? Yeah. And I was like, we'll find out. We'll, well get funny, someone. It's funny because I can't remember what podcast it was in, but uh, of yours. It kind of came up and I was like, oh, you know, my mom asked me one time. She's like, what are all those names at the end of the movie? And I go, mom, those are all full-time jobs. She's like, oh my God. She couldn't believe it. I was yeah. like, yeah. Every one of those positions. It's wild. time job. Yeah. Yeah. And the most critical to me is like production assistants. Production assistants are the oil that make this business run. That's where your problem solving and troubleshooting starts. If you can't figure it out there, you're just not going to. But that's also where you kind of find out like you have access to all departments. So you kind of feel like, oh, I wasn't really thinking about post-production, but I thought I'd be more of a camera guy, but I kind of like post-production. They don't get up early and they, uh, you know, sip coffee and uh, they're inside where it's warm and yeah. cool. And <laughs> climate controlled area. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. It's yeah, kind of like being an intern almost, right? Like you, nobody really. It's paid, it, yeah. Yeah. I, well, but nobody expects you to like know everything and you have the authority to ask whatever questions you want to ask when you're a PA, right? No, no, no. That's, that. no. No? That's, uh, yeah. Like on Giant Thunder Mountain. Um, we had a 45 minute ride up the mountain and there was this kid from back East and I had to ride down into town with him and he was all upset. I was like, what's going on? Oh man, they're, they're just, you know, they're running me around and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, all I want to do is be in the grip department and they think I'm screwing off and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what are you going to do about that? He's like, he's like, I don't know. I'm just going to quit. And I go, well, don't quit. I said, uh, do this. Every time the UPM or the first AD calls something on the radio, on the microphone, just go, Josh is on that. Everybody on set hears that all day long. You cannot tell me that anybody's going to be like, Josh is a screw off. Josh is on top of everything. Sure. All he wanted to do was be a grip. That's the department he was drawn to, right? He comes up to me a week later and he goes, you're never going to guess what just happened. I go, what, you got fired? And he goes, no, Key Grip just asked me to join there. He went up to production and said, I want him on our crew now. Wow. He's, no, he's no longer a production assistant. He's a grip now. Wow. That's he's awesome. Like, he's like, so thanks for talking me off the wall. I was like, man. But I've done that with like ADs on set too. Sure. Like one guy, I just could tell he was going to pop. So I pulled him into our camera room real quick and I go, hey, Michael, what's going on? He goes, he goes, oh, I go, I know what's going on. I just want you to say it out loud, but I'm going to tell you something. Whatever you're thinking about doing out there, that's only going to reflect on you. And I'm going to tell you right now, everybody on this crew loves you. They know you are doing a great job. They can separate what's going on with the first AD from what you do. When they see your name on the call sheet, they're like, Michael's gonna be here tomorrow. That's gonna be great. Cause he's one of those guys that he's on it and he'll take care of problems. He'll answer your questions. If he doesn't know the answer, he'll find it out for you. And he's a good go-to guy. And I'm sure I'd have to look up his name now, but I'm sure he's an amazing first AD now. Nice. You know, but I just like, just take a moment in the camera room here, collect yourself and then walk back out there on set and know that everybody out there just thinks you're amazing. You, you know. made a huge difference in that guy's life. Well, I just saw it coming and I was like, oh, this guy's going to blow it right now and I can't let that happen. Sure. I just think people need to be told that too. You know, we're all swimming up that river and nobody ever pulls you over to the shore and goes, hey, I saw what you did. That was amazing. My favorite thing on set is just to watch somebody who's really good at what they do. And I'll tell them. 
I'll be like, I saw what you did over there. That was amazing. You but know, good on you for saying that because a lot of people see it and they maybe don't say it or they take it for granted. Yeah. They assume that the other person knows, but right. I feel like everybody benefits from hearing yeah. that. Yeah. My other thing that I always tell people is like, never underestimate who's watching you. Sure. Set. sure. You just never know. Yeah. Could be somebody that comes in for two seconds. You, they may not look like they're paying attention, but they're good. They're paying attention. Yeah. So you just never know. Anybody could be watching at any time and anything could yeah. come back to bite you or it could come back to work in your favor. You kind yeah. of decide what that moment is. Exactly. So when you were at Mad TV and you're working on the video portion of things, did you want to get on the show? How does the job differ from what you were shooting on Mad TV versus what the kind of in-studio live, for lack of a better word, cameraman does? Well, that's kind of considered what we call a four-camera show. Okay. And four-camera show is like a cheers, that kind of thing. I really liked what I was doing with the film side of it. I didn't really think about that too much at the time. Not like, oh, I should get on that part of it too. Because they don't really have... That's a whole different, it's kind of weird. It's like the video world and the film world were kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They kind of just stayed away from me, you know. Really? There wasn't a lot of crossover with that. I think once we got into HD, there was like, well, you have to push a button now to record. So now that's this. And, you know, it's like, oh boy, there's plenty of work for everybody, as we now know. Sometimes I'll meet somebody and I'll, I'll be like, what are you working on? And they're like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm like, oh, new show? And they're like, no, four season. I was like, oh, what network? Never heard of it. I was at a party one time and I just like, wow, that is crazy. Your show's been on for four years, doing really well. I've never heard of it and I've never heard of the network. Yeah. You know? I feel like, like... But it's great. It's like... Maybe you put out a spreadsheet that has all the shows, <laughs> oh season numbers. Yeah, it would just be a rotating just like... <laughs> yeah. I feel like I need that for managing which subscription services we're currently subscribing to. Yeah. You know, it's like, are we really going to subscribe to nine things at 10 bucks a month this month? Or what can we yeah. actually watch? So many shows, so little time. Uh, yeah. But I had a friend recently that said, you know, it used to be ABC, NBC, and CBS. And he goes, it's going to be the same thing in a few years. It's just going to be Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Yep. So... How do you get to curb your enthusiasm? Do you just have this litany of all of these shows that you've worked on? And I know it's kind of a, a leapfrog one to the to right. the next, right? But there's interconnective tissue to all of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's kind of amazing because you don't think about it. But when I was doing Mad TV, there was another cameraman, Bill Sheehy. He was doing kind of the video version, the video remotes of okay. what we were doing. And it was a lot for him to deal with the equipment and shooting and all that kind of stuff. So my friend Mark said, hey... Are you available? Can you come help Bill? And I was like, yeah. So then through that relationship, Bill got offered Curb Your Enthusiasm. So we started that second season and I did that second, third, fourth, fifth, and halfway through the sixth season. And then I went off and did a show called The Comeback for HBO, um, which did not come back. Because <laughs> <laughs> my friend Mark from Mad TV had moved over to HBO. And so I did the pilot and I was like, hey, what's HBO's take on The Comeback? And he's like, five years minimum. I was like, really? I was like, okay. So I thought, oh, I'll move over to that because, you know, Curbs probably run its course and <laughs> here it is, you know, <laughs> 13th season or whatever it's on, yeah. about, you know. So that's how I made that transition from Mad TV, meeting Bill on that show, took me over to Curb. You're handheld on that? On Curb? That show was handheld, yeah. And I was an assistant cameraman on that. So what is the, when you're an assistant cameraman, you're not actually holding the camera then? No, that's an operator. And so what, is, what are your jobs specifically on, on Curb then? We had the director's cart, which had all the monitors on it. Then we had a engineering cart that had all the technical gear for the DP to hook the cameras in because we we're all cabled. Okay. There was no wireless at that point because this is, what is this, 2000? It's DigiBeta, which is kind of standard def okay. digital. 
And so the cameras were fairly light, but when you hold them for 10 hours or for 10 minutes, you know, constantly, and it's hard to keep a camera framed up mm-hmm. and steady, you know, when you're handheld and people are moving and you don't know where they're going because there's no script and you don't know where the laughs are coming from. So those catch you off guard. It's almost like doing a live show because that's the show where like your ears become your second set of eyes. Sure. You really just have to listen. And there shows like that I find are so interesting where the cameraman can tell a joke. You know, it can be yeah, yeah. exclusively on the cameraman. Yeah. I always find that so impressive with all the things that everybody's keeping in touch. Like yeah. you still can can grab that, um, right? You know, whether it's the the shot that you're cutting away to, or yeah. the way that things are framed to give perspective. Right. Uh, there's a lot of storytelling that rests on the cameraman for something like that. Yeah, and being there, no, there's no script. The post production crew on that show should have won the Emmy every year. Yeah. I literally have seen them, like the camera's pointing straight ahead, an actor walks by on their left side, the camera spins around fast enough that that same actor walks in on that shot now, and they've cut directly to that. Wow. But it's almost like documentary filmmaking, that's when I was listening to, was it Sarah? Sarah, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, you're just finding all these creative transitions and stuff, but there's no script. And so we would shoot for two and a half weeks, and we take a week and a half off. In that week and a half off, they would figure out what content they needed to go back and reshoot. Flesh things out a bit. Flesh things out. Because when I first started Curb, my first day was at Marina Del Rey at the Ritz-Carlton. Okay. Larry and his wife, Cheryl, had to move into a hotel because they had, had to move out of their house. And they were house hunting. The next scene in the outline was they go to look at a house in Malibu. We pack up the circus and we go to Malibu. The next scene... And how many people are in the circus, roughly? This is a very small circus at this point. Now they've got trucks and trailers and everything. But literally, we had a three-ton cube van, which is like your average, you know, Galpin Ford, you mm-hmm. know, like a U-Haul, for those who don't know Galpin Ford. <laughs> the <laughs> local reference. Yeah. But yeah, so it was production, which meant all the tables for lunch, all the trash cans and all that kind of stuff were up at the front. Then wardrobe was in there and then sound was on one side at the back and camera was at the other side on the back. We're all sharing a truck because the first day my camera car was a Suburban. I had to show up an hour early to work so I could unload it so they could shuttle people to and from crew parking. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't going to work. You had to break everything down every day. Wow. And it was just like, this is going to be really hard on the equipment, just unconnecting all these cables that we have to connect and stuff. Sure. And so I think by Wednesday or Thursday of that week, we had a cube van. And then I brought in my bigger cart. I, everything fit on there. And I just would roll it off in the morning, with, put all the cables on top. And um, I'd be like, okay, production can pull out. Is, you know. So we kind of had problem solving, troubleshooting. Exactly. It seems kinda like thing. it all just yeah. comes back to that. Yeah. But I always liked when people would be like, oh my God, I'm the biggest fan of Curb. And I wrote a script. Do you think you could get to it? And I was like, well, you're obviously not that big of a fan because yeah. there is no scripts on the show. Yeah, this you know? was a test and you already failed. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things was to go when we would shoot in Larry's office and there's just whiteboards on every wall. And it's just how they have their thought. Pro- you just look, watch their thought process you know, as you read it, you're like, oh my God, this is phenomenal. Do you see a through line when you're working with, I mean, somebody, obviously, I don't think it's a stretch to say that they're a comedic genius, somebody like Larry David, somebody like Norm MacDonald. Yeah. And the Norm thing, was a special that you worked on? It was a pilot. A pilot. Well, I've done two things. Okay. So I did his Netflix that they just released, which was when Dave Chappelle, David Spade, Molly Shannon, Conan O'Brien, and David Letterman had just come from his memorial and they brought him to Netflix 
And then they watched what would have been his last stand-up special. That's that, when he's in front of the computer? Yeah. Yep. So that was his producer recording that because he never got a chance to do it. So they watched it, and then we shot an hour of them just discussing it, which is what you see. It's basically a live cut of that whole thing. Yeah. But I'd also done uh, Norm McDonald pilot. What was that like working with him? Oh, my God. He was just amazing. He did a great Andy Rooney. So we did a 60-minute spot. And then we had a hospital set. And we're shooting his girlfriend coming in to the hospital to see him. And he is such a dominating boyfriend that she, like, set his house on fire to kill him so that she could get out of the relationship. And he didn't die. So she pulls back the curtain in the hospital room and there's Norm's head, but it's like one of those rubber alien bodies and it's just smoking. <laughs> so she walks in, she goes, oh my God, I know, I'm so sorry. And he just looks at her and goes, honey, you fucked with the wrong guy. <laughs> like he's still going to just like be he's a total dick it. to her. You know? Yeah, <laughs> It's just like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Yeah, he's such a talent. And just like so soft-spoken too, you know. But I loved him on Saturday Night Live. and Yeah, I love his stand-up. I could watch it all day. Yeah. My favorite thing was when he would do bits for Letterman. He would come on and just do a set he knew was going to bomb. He just enjoyed it. Yeah. And I was like, that takes a lot of balls. Yeah. Well, like the Bob Saget roast when he just did like the terrible <laughs> grandfather jokes and yeah, exactly. was actually heartfelt. Nobody yeah, yeah. really knew how to take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Except all the comedians were rolling because it was so funny. Yeah. yeah. He was living out their dream, basically. Yeah. 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 Well, the one thing I would say about Mad TV, too, is because I like comedy, it was fun to see how the sausage is made. There was a great director on that for the first two years, John Blanchard. He's from, I think, Vancouver. Somebody would be like, hey, should I do this? And he goes, yeah, that's funny. He says, but it do, it's not funny in this context. Mm -hmm. We're setting up a joke, and if you say that, that pre-sells the joke, and then the joke we're trying to set up isn't as funny. And it was just so much fun to just watch that. Sure. Yeah. I did a Martin Short special too, where he had a variety show for a while. Okay. He just wanted to do more skits and stuff like that. So he was playing Martina Navratilova and she had a fragrance out. Okay. And so that was very funny. But they would talk about stuff like that. They'd be like, oh, well, wouldn't it be funnier if, you know, that's what's interesting to me because it's just behind the scenes kind of, you know, process of how they think. Because, you know, they're amazing at what they do, but it's just like, well, how do they get to that, though? Sure. Can you walk me through actually what like a, a week is like on Curb Your Enthusiasm? Well, everything's location, so there's no stages. You show up to location, wheel your cart out, walk in. It's funny because there was a really great camera operator named John Purdy still working. He had this thing called diversionary setups. And so when we would show up, we'd show up at 7. The DP would be like, well, I think it's going to be this and this and this. Then the director would show up at 9.30. Oh, well, let's flip it around and do this, this, and this. So we're changing the lighting stuff. And then Larry shows up at 10.30, and we're switching everything around. And he goes, okay, well, we're on our third diversionary setup, you know. So it's like we're just going to go through the motions to kill time until actually Larry shows up and tells us what to do. Sure. And so anybody that uh, takes responsibility for directing that show, there's some talent involved there. But for the most part, it's what Larry's got in his brain and what he wants to do. And it's fascinating. He's one of the few people I've seen when he wasn't in a scene, he would pull up an Apple box and sit on set and watch right by the cameras and just watch the actors. He never, he was never at Video Village. Why do you think he did that? Video Village is tunnel vision. It limits what you can see. If he's in that space and he's directly right there with him, number one, he doesn't have to walk on set to say, hang on a second. I was fascinated by that because it's just like everybody else is back at 
as Cheryl would call it, Video Valley. <laughs> she goes, where is Video Valley again? I was like, it's, it's not a valley, it's a village. <laughs> but yeah, just his process and how he thinks about things is funny. He used to do this thing where he would whistle. And if I whistle a tune, you will start whistling that tune subconsciously. And he would do that to see if the sound guy had brought down his microphone. So he would know that people weren't listening to his, oh. his interaction with other people, right? Okay. So one day I was on set. I think I was striping tapes or something like that. And he came through and he was whistling the theme to The Third Man, the Orson Welles movie. Okay. So just over my shoulder, I was like, hey, Larry, is that the theme to The Third Man? And he stopped in his tracks and just stared at me. And I was like, okay, I guess this is my last day. And he goes... I've been trying to think of that all day. I couldn't think of the name of that song or where it was from and stuff. And I was just like, oh boy, bullet dodged. You know, I was like, wow. Yeah, you're expecting yeah. one thing and you get something totally different. Yeah. Every day on that show is kind of the same because it's new location, unload the truck, get set up, diversionary, you know, things, and then shoot throughout the day and stuff. And how long are you typically shooting? Depending on the location, it could go 12. With that kind of comedy, you get tired fast. Sure. Because you're constantly thinking, reacting, and it's not like you're memorizing stuff and just, you know, you can kind of phone it in. You have to be on your toes for that. There were people that would come in, and Larry, the international sign was like waving your hands in front of your face. Larry would do that, and he'd be just like, okay, let's stop for a second. Don't do jokes. Your job is to make me uncomfortable. Sure. That's where the comedy is going to come in, you know. So people would just be nervous because it's like, I don't have a script to learn. You know, there's this old comedian, Shelley Berman. In one of the episodes, Larry had gone back to do a part in a Martin Scorsese movie in the show. While he's gone, his mom dies. So now Larry's coming back and Shelley Berman's playing his dad. And he has to tell him that his wife has died, but he doesn't want to tell him. Okay. So he's like doing this whole thing. He's like, well, we were, you know, your mom liked to dance and we were doing the tango and she got kind of sweaty and her, she slipped and fell and hit her head on the coffee table. And, and Larry's... And Larry's just hysterical laughing. And he's like waving off, like, we got to stop. We got to stop. He's like, that's not in the outline. And Shelly Berman goes, what outline? I don't have an outline. He goes, I just, I just, somebody told me that I have to tell you that your mom died. So I just came up with that. <laughs> it was hilarious. Wow. Yeah. And he goes, I wish we could use that. He goes, but we, here, let's get you an outline so you can read sure. it real fast. It and then he did something phenomenal with that, you know. So then Larry's mom got, she had a tattoo Okay. Larry in the show had bought his mom a really nice plot in the Jewish part of the cemetery, right? So they buried her with the hookers and all that because she had a tattoo. So then Larry and his dad and his agent Jeff and stuff all go to the cemetery to dig her up and move her into Larry's plot. <laughs> and so they're all sitting there, you know, digging the hole to get her out. And Larry's dad, Shelly Berman, he goes, I just filled this hole in. <laughs> And it was just like, oh my God. But that's what I mean. It's like that kind of stuff comes up and you're just like, you don't see it coming and it's hard not to react to it, you know? Sure. And it's hard to hold the camera steady when you're doing that kind of stuff. Too, yeah. So. Did you, but, how often would the crew bust on something like that? It depended. My favorites were Wanda Sykes, Ted Danson. Okay. And Cheryl. Cheryl was pretty good at pushing Larry's buttons, but that's all they did, you know? They just sure. knew how to get him. But for Larry, that show was all about content. And I've heard him say, like, he'd go up to the, the producer and be like, hey, we got to be out of here in a half an hour. They'd walk off set and he'd be like, listen, this show's all about content. When it stops being about content, it stops being a show. Sure. You know, so that was his primary concern. And that's why that show was so good. Still is, you know, because it's about the content. So you, know? you could see, like, 
you probably have make like six different episodes out of the content that you shot, right? Yeah, yeah. But he always has it very clear in his mind where this is going to go, and you know, and he'll he'll pivot, you know, and make adjustments and stuff like that. But it's pretty true to what, I mean, I always think like when when I'm working with somebody, especially as a DP or an operator, I'll be like, okay, I just want to put it out there that, that you've been working on this probably for at least a year. I'm seeing it for the first time. So I'm going to mention stuff. You can tell me to stick it in my ear. It's not going to hurt my feelings, but I have to mention it because it's something that I'm noticing. And I just want to clarify that I'm getting you what you want. Can you tell me about this Metallica through the never? Oh my God. That was fun. What, this is a concert film I'm not familiar with? It was for their 25th anniversary. Okay. So they built a stage the size of a hockey rink. They shipped it down to Mexico City, set it up, did a concert, because I guess that's their biggest fan base is in Mexico. Really? Yeah, I would have never known that. And then they broke it all down, shipped it up to, I think, I want to say Edmonton or Winnipeg. Okay. And did a concert there. And then they took it to Vancouver. And it was just for their 25th anniversary. Wow. And they built it just for the 3D movie. Okay. They set up this stage. And so I have my monitor there for pulling focus and for doing the convergence on the 3D and stuff. All of a sudden, the stagehands come over and start ripping out these speakers right by my monitor. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, I was like, I'm with the show. I should know what's happening, right? And they're like, get that thing out of here. And I was like, what is going on right now? But it was all part of their show. It was all kind of, I think a speaker blows up or something, but it was all part of it, but they didn't tell us. Wow. That's not the kind of surprise you want. No, especially when it's the 3D was just like so tenuous as far as like getting everything hooked up right. So there's feeds everywhere and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So we did that for two nights. And the next night the guys came over. So I knew I was just like, is this speaker going to blow up tonight? Because <laughs> I'm not moving my monitor. I'll move it somewhere else where I'm safer, you know? Yeah. That was the best concert experience. You know, I mean, literally like the lighting grid above was rigged to collapse. Wow. I mean, it was like, and you, I go, you guys are doing this for th basically one show, but you'd, you've done it three, three times. Three times, yeah. I was like, that's commitment, but it was fun. That's amazing. Yeah. What else is on that bucket list? Bucket list? What a masters. It'd yeah. Be fun. Yeah. Are you working on that? No. No, that opportunity, I think, is it would just be to go, you mm. know. I like doing the live comedy stuff. I'd like to do some more of that. I did two pilots. One was a dating show. Okay. But the people wore metrics. So they had these packs that they would wear, and they had these glasses they wore. And the glasses tracked their pupil movement. It was like wearing a polygraph. Okay. The idea was they'd meet at a bar. They'd talk for like 10 minutes. And in Video Valley, or Valley Village, whatever. Video Valley <laughs> Video Village. Video Valley, yeah. yeah. Video Valley Village. Um, they could see the metrics. But it was interesting there because they're like, you'd start to zoom in on something just because, you know, that's where your hearing comes in. Like you're listening to this conversation. You're like, oh, it's kind of getting a little intimate. Let's just tighten this up a little bit. And they'll like, be like, okay, Tom, back out a little bit because we don't have room for metrics because you have to leave. It's like a lower oh, third for sure, the news, sure. you know? So it's that kind of stuff. But it was fascinating. That's an interesting take on a dating show. Sure. You know, but it was this guy had gone to USC film school and then worked for a contractor in the military where they had all this biometrics that they would use on the soldiers. He's like, hmm, maybe we could make a dating show out of this. Yeah, there's the military again in the yeah, entertainment yeah, industry. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. More military stuff working its way into the biz. Yeah. 
Well, I certainly appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you or do you want to be found out there? <laughs> no, leave me alone. All right. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm at uh, Bango Cam on Instagram. Bango Cam on Instagram. Yeah. All right. I'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. I know what you're thinking. Did they really hype a picture of a C-47, which I now know to be a clothespin, being posted to Instagram on the account so.youworkinentertainment? Yeah. I gave Bango a little bit of money to say that, but then I followed through. And if you don't believe me, head over to so.youworkinentertainment and check it out. Get all your friends together and check it out. I dare you. Thanks for listening.